0: For this episode of Metaphors Be With You, we'll be talking about perhaps the most beloved movie of this generally well-regarded franchise. Hi, I'm Rob Hyard of Chipperish Media, and this is a podcast about symbolism and allegory in Star Wars. The movies, the TV shows, the books, and everything else. Except during Season 3, when instead I'm going to be going through each movie to find the metaphors hidden in each one. The Empire Strikes Back was the first movie that I remember seeing all of in the theater. My parents and I disagree on whether I insisted we leave because I was bored in the middle of the New Hope re-release when I was four, but I was definitely all in on Empire. We saw it several times that summer, and throughout most of my life it's gone back and forth with Jedi for the title of my favorite Star Wars film. Watching it as an adult, I see that it's definitely one of the most beautiful films in the series, and now I've drifted into reviewing, which is what I said I wouldn't do, so let's talk about metaphors. So the first thing we find out is that the Rebels are now on an ice planet. I like this, because it's a great signifier for how remote they are and how desperate their situation is. The rebels have been banished to Siberia, because the Empire is hunting them so doggedly. A desert world would also have worked for this, except that we used desert last time, so frozen tundra it is. But it doesn't matter where the rebels have gone. A probe droid shows up. It's a nice touch that looks kind of like a spider, suggesting the net or web that the Empire is dragging across the entire galaxy. And speaking of the Empire, we check in with them to find that there's a radically different status quo than there was before. First, we see a Star Destroyer, with the camera establishing scale in the same kind of interminable pan we saw in A New Hope. And then, in a moment I didn't actually parse until my 20s and made me say holy shit out loud at the TV, there's a shadow thrown over this gigantic ship by Darth Vader's even bigger ship, the Executor. And not only does he have a fancy new ride, his helmet and armor have been buffed to a high gloss because there's no longer anybody holding his leash this time. Vader has arrived and he can choke an admiral to death without anybody saying boo about it. We also get a glimpse of what secondary sources will tell us is his meditation chamber. This thing looks like a hexagonal egg, and it seems really significant to me, but it might be as simple as, it being a life-support machine gives us a way for Admiral Piat to get a glimpse of Vader without his helmet. I really only bring it up because I want one of you to contact me and explain something amazing about it, because I think it's really cool-looking. Meanwhile, back in good guy land, Luke has been mauled by a yeti. I wish I could remember what the Wampa sequence looked like before this special edition. I know we saw a lot less of the monster, and sometimes that's more effective. But this is what we have now. Anyway, I like that Luke has been hung upside down, despite my questions about how and why the wampa did that, because it's a great signifier for his fate. He is now a piece of meat in a butcher shop, with all the dignity we afford to plucked and decapitated turkeys. He then saves himself using the series' first instance of telekinesis, and then runs out of the cave into the storm, rather than finish off the now one-armed wampa and shelter in its cave. Of course, this is very much a movie about Luke making terrible decisions, so I guess we'll call it a character beat and move on. Luke then has his hallucination slash force vision of Ben telling him to go to the Dagobah system. What I really like about this sequence is that after Ben is done talking, Han rides up through his image, suggesting that maybe the ghost helped guide Han to where Luke was. I'm calling this idea confirmed later on when Ben is warning Luke that he won't be able to interfere if Luke goes to face Vader, suggesting that he already has interfered to save Luke. As I said, this is in large part a movie about Luke making terrible decisions, but it does take the time to show us his growth as well. We first set a baseline by introducing Dak, Luke's gunner when he's about to fly his snowspeeder. Dak is all youthful optimism, and we see Luke react to that from his older and wiser perch. Later on in the battle, with Dak dead and the snowspeeder crashed, we get to see Luke's capability coming into focus. I've said before that the vehicles in Star Wars amount to a sort of narrative magnifying glass, allowing our heroes agency on a larger scale than would otherwise be possible. But at this point in the narrative, Luke Skywalker doesn't need a vehicle to take down an AT-AT, a feat that a whole bunch of other rebels are attempting with a whole lot more equipment to middling success at best. I dare say Luke is the only character in the Rebellion right now that could do this unaided. As we move into Act 2, with Luke going one way and Han and Leia going another, I'm surprised at the parallels between their stories even though run desperately from the Empire and head to Force school, would seem pretty unrelated as goals. Luke heads to Dagobah, the most wholly organic environment we have seen in Star Wars. Han and Leia end up in an asteroid field, which has a sort of organic feel, with all the constant churning movement and a similar color palette to Dagobah. On arriving in the swamp... R2-D2, a metal construct containing consciousness, is swallowed by a big snake. On arriving in the asteroid field, the Millennium Falcon, a metal construct containing consciousness, is swallowed by a big snake. I like the difference of scale here, because if you pretend for a moment that big snakes are all the same size, it means that Luke really has entered a larger world, as Ben promised he would as he started learning things about the Force, and is currently a giant. From a narrative impact perspective, he is. An adat killing giant whose mere existence is keeping the galaxy's most powerful villains awake at night. Which brings us to Yoda's speech about the nature of the Force, which is the first, and for many years only, explanation of what the Force is really like that we will get. It's a bit ironic that the character saying life creates it, makes it grow, and luminous beings are we, not this crude matter, is actually an inanimate piece of latex, but it's easy to forget that Yoda isn't alive because Frank Oz knows what he's doing. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite pieces of performance in all of Star Wars is Yoda's shocked reaction when his C- student has so much raw potential that he can move a spaceship a little bit. We also find out from Yoda's lines around that scene like there is no try and unlearn what you have learned that a Force user can apparently accomplish literally anything if they can make themselves believe it's possible. Kind of like a Green Lantern ring, which can do anything that the bearer can imagine and then will into being. Without getting off on too much of a tangent though, it's interesting that the Green Lantern way of knuckling down and forcing the universe to obey your will, is also the Sith way. The Jedi are passive, and must open themselves to the Force and ignore their sense of self in order to use the light side. But both Green Lanterns and Jedi are presented as heroes, because different cultural contexts can venerate different virtues. Lucas intentionally based the light side of the Force on what he understood about Japanese philosophy and culture, and arrived at the Jedi. The first Green Lantern, on the other hand, was created in the U.S. in the 1940s, and America reaching out to exert control over the world was probably a pretty appealing idea at the time. So speaking of the dark side, let's talk about the cave scene. First of all, it's kind of trivial, but I love the detail that half of Luke's face is in shadow when he first senses the cave's presence. So then he asks what's in there, and Yoda tells him, only what you take with you. And Luke, like a bonehead, straps on his weapon belt, even after Yoda tells him explicitly that he won't need his weapons. And I don't know if you have movies where you keep hoping that maybe this time the hero won't make the mistake they made every other time you watched it, but this one is mine. Every time, I hope that maybe he'll listen to Yoda just once, and he never does it. Twit. So he enters the cave, and the movie goes out of its way to show us that there are plenty of living things in there. There's an elaborate root system for the trees around, and we see a few small animals. It may be evil, but it's definitely of the force. It's worth mentioning, though, that the small animals are reptiles, snakes and lizards. It makes me think of Eve being tempted by the serpent, though obviously the Abrahamic faiths don't have a trademark on finding reptiles creepy. So then hallucinatory Vader shows up for the fake duel. It's interesting that Vader doesn't say anything here, even though the last time we saw him dueling with someone he was pretty chatty and even talk to himself alone in his cockpit in the trench battle. This is Luke's childish conception of the monster, not a person in any way, or even a dark side spirit or something taking the shape of Vader. Of course, that makes it all the more shocking when it turns out to be a regular person under the helmet, even if you can't tell it's Luke. Because I don't know how common this experience was, but five-year-old Rob did not understand that the regular person face under that helmet was Luke's face. I've had trouble with faces on screen my whole life, and it has occasionally interfered with my ability to enjoy dramatic revelations. In any case, I think this scene is why the movie makes a point of showing us the back of Vader's head earlier, so we can see that he's all messed up looking, and won't assume that this is just what he looks like. And now that we've established that it's Luke's face, however long that may take us, what does that mean? Is it foreshadowing the shocking twist at the end of this movie? Is it just a warning that this is what's ahead of him if he keeps, you know, preparing for violence all the time by taking his weapons where they're not needed? It feels a little vague to me, but it's definitely a spooky warning about something. It's around this time that Vader takes a FaceTime call from the Emperor, and we finally get to see a bit of the guy we only talked about a little in the last movie. The first thing that's obvious is that, despite Vader's new elevation and authority, he still absolutely has a boss, and this guy is it. We also find out for the first time that this Emperor knows about the Force, and apparently can sense Luke through it from... wherever he is. It's also interesting that before the special editions, the Emperor we saw wasn't even entirely human. Before Ian McDermott was cast as the Emperor for Return of the Jedi, he was played in Empire by a woman named Marjorie Eaton, wearing prosthetics and with the eyes of a chimpanzee superimposed over hers. I like to think the metaphoric idea here is that the Sith are more animalistic and base, but the most important result of this decision is the game my friends and I played in college when watching these movies. Basically, any time anyone says anything to the Emperor, you add, chimp-eyes, to the end of the sentence, and then whenever Palpatine speaks, you add, and don't call me chimp-eyes, to the end. So you get exchanges like this. I am a Jedi, like my father before me, Chimpies. So be it, Jedi. And don't call me Chimpies. Look, we didn't have the internet, so we made our own fun. Obviously it's also interesting and significant that the Emperor is played by a woman. This might be as simple as I wanted to contrast him with Vader. It wouldn't be very interesting if Vader's boss was just a bigger, scarier dude in black armor. So we go the opposite direction and make the Emperor not physically imposing at all, by tapping into the long history of coding villains queer. The Emperor is not a real man TM, and therefore must be extremely evil. Meanwhile, our non-Luke heroes arrive at Cloud City, which appears to be capital H heaven. Besides being literally in the clouds, the environment is largely white, at least the parts we see at first. Then the Empire is revealed, and we suddenly see a lot of red light around, which is a particularly strong contrast to the bluish light we saw in Echo Base on Hoth. And just to complete the transformation from heaven to hell, the carbon freezing chamber, arguably the worst part of Cloud City, is actually built with concentric rings on the floor, just like the rings of hell in Dante's Inferno. Speaking of the carbon freezing chamber, I love that Vader's plan here is to encase Luke in metal, which will make Luke more like him. And then we have the big duel... It's worth noting that Luke is the first one to ignite his saber in this fight, which foreshadows that he learned absolutely nothing from the cave on Dagobah. In this first phase of the duel, he's very aggressive, even though the fight choreography seems to imply that Vader is just toying with him. He's not even using both hands most of the time. There are three phases to the duel altogether. In this first one, Luke seems to have the upper hand for a while. Then he knocks Vader off a platform before he makes yet another terrible decision and jumps down after him. Remember that he came here to save his friends. He stopped trying to intervene in that situation a while ago, and he's got a perfect chance to run back to his ship right now, but instead he chases after Vader like an idiot. So he arrives in the second phase of the duel, where Vader demonstrates that he doesn't even have to fight Luke with a sword. He can throw stuff at Luke with the Force while still defending himself effectively. He then knocks Luke out a window before they start the third and final phase of the duel. At the beginning of phase three, the camera work emphasizes that Vader is much bigger than Luke, giving us a visual reminder of what we've been learning, that Luke is in over his head. Thankfully, Luke has finally figured this out, and is trying to retreat for most of the time. He does, however, take a moment to tap into his anger and the dark side, and that's the one time he actually injures Vader. And to notice that this is the moment Vader is over this fight and cuts off Luke's hand, as he presumably could have done at any point earlier, but now he's pissed. And then Luke is teetering on the abyss, literally, but is he also there figuratively? He's been too aggressive, and he just touched the dark side, but he doesn't seem particularly tempted to join Vader. Is this maybe because Luke knows how to perform good guy? Better he knows how to be one? Real evil is usually more subtle than, join me, and together we can rule the galaxy. So it's perhaps not surprising that Luke knows how to reject that kind of villainy, even as he makes all sorts of slip-ups that bring him closer to more subtle evil. As a weird side note, I'm interested that this movie begins and ends with Luke getting serious medical care. If nothing else, it does nicely underscore the theme of this movie, which is, Luke makes terrible decisions. I want to wrap up this section by talking about Lando. As the proprietor of the place that is a stand-in for both heaven and hell, Lando is a bit of a contradiction. And of course that's by design, since he's the guy who switches sides. While he's on Cloud City, it acts as his narrative magnifying glass, giving him the ability to act on a scale that matters to these big established heroes and villains. And the brief scene of him announcing that the Empire has taken control of the city and that everyone should leave shows that he really does have a sense of responsibility to these people. Also, shout out to Lobot, the bald cyborg who is the actual face of Cloud City, letting Lando meaningfully exchange glances with his... agency. But notice that once Lando is off Cloud City, he's immediately our substitute Han. One of the first things he says once he's off the city is that it's not his fault that the hyperdrive still doesn't work, echoing Han's comment almost exactly. And in the final scene, when Lando and Chewie head off to find Han, Lando is wearing Han's standard costume of a white shirt with a black vest, because he'll be taking over a role of scoundrel with a heart of gold, thank you very much. Obviously that didn't really happen in Return of the Jedi, but it definitely feels like the intent here. On to intertextual points. I mentioned last time how frustrating I find a lot of the prequel hints we get in the original trilogy, because a number of them are not technically inaccurate, but a basic understanding of how people talk would tell you that's not what was meant. One of the examples in this movie is Ben's line describing Yoda as the Jedi Master who instructed me. Please note the definite article. Yoda is not one of the Jedi Masters, or a Jedi Master. He is the Jedi Master. Similarly, when Yoda is talking about how Luke has much anger in him, Obi-Wan asks, Was I any different when you taught me? Well, now that we've seen Attack of the Clones, and know that Yoda's job appeared to be teaching the very youngest Jedi before they got individual mentors, Obi-Wan is apparently comparing Luke's anger issues to his own as a five-year-old. That's not an argument that's going to convince anyone. And speaking of age, in the original performance, when Yoda finally settles on he is too old as an excuse, he's pretty obviously reaching. But if Anakin at nine was also too old, then Luke is so obviously too old, there really wouldn't be a need to discuss it. The mere act of bringing Luke to Dagobah at all is him tacitly saying, I know this is against the rules, but we're in an exceptional situation. Yoda reaching for age now makes him petty or just unable to read subtext, neither of which makes sense for his character. Before I discuss my favorite part of The Empire Strikes Back, I want to take a moment to talk about spoilers. There's been a lot of discussion in the last few years about spoilers, and while I agree that some folks take their spoiler sensitivity to unhealthy degrees, I would also like to give a quick defense of spoiler sensitivity, because my favorite part of The Empire Strikes Back is the reveal. I have no idea how many times I've watched this movie, but literally every time Vader tells us, No, I am your father. I am five years old again, having the floor fall out from under me, and hearing the information beforehand would definitely have not had the same impact. Obviously not every story has a truly spoilable moment, but some of them sure as hell do, and I like to honor people's preferences about that. The favorite part that has only developed since I've been an adult is the cinematography. This is a fucking gorgeous movie. And those are my thoughts on the metaphors of The Empire Strikes Back. Please let me know what you thought, ideally by joining Chiprush's patron-only Discord chat. Not a patron? You can solve that by going to patreon.com chiprush and pledging some arbitrary amount of money per month. Thanks for listening, and metaphors be with you.